0: We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and guide and and show us what you'd want us to see and help us to understand what you want us to see from this section of scripture. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be looking at King Hezekiah, who God says is one of the greatest kings that that they had. So we're going to start at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty-five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned for twenty-nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places, he broke the images, he cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made, for unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense into it and he called it Nehushtan and he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that all that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor any that were before him for he clave unto the Lord and departed not from following him but kept his commandments which the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and served him not. He smote the Philistines even unto Gaza, and the borders thereof, from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. So we look at verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So this is one of the greatest kings of Israel. We're quickly coming to the end of the, uh, Judah's reign as well. Uh, he's going to give birth to Manasseh. Then Manasseh is going to give birth to Josiah. And then we're going to have uh, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, and Them Anyway, Anyway, three, four kings in real succession there. So we're only like five generations away from the end of the nation of judah as well from this point and it says that he begins to reign at age 25 years old and he's going to reign for 29 years so he has a fairly long reign and i love in verse three and he did that was right in the sight of the lord according to all that david his father did so he is going to be a very righteous king uh, he's going to be doing things right verse four says and he removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and broke down into pieces the brazen serpent which Moses had made. So remember each one of these kings, even the few good kings we've had, they kept saying they did they restored the temple, but they did not destroy the high places. Hezekiah comes in and he destroys any idol worship. Uh, he is on fire for God, which is kind of amazing because his father wasn't that great a guy. And yet he comes in and he's on fire for God and he gets rid of the high places. He gets rid of all the altars. He gets rid of all the thing, uh, pagans. He cuts down the Astoroth totems. Uh, he gets rid of any place that anybody else is worshiping completely. He completely brings a revival upon the land, at least fort enforced one. But apparently as we read this chapter, there's, there's elements of this being a real revival. What we mean now. Huh? That's what we need in our country, full revival. Uh, and it also says in here that he broke and he broke into pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had done. And this is the brass serpent that when the wilderness when the people were bit by snakes and they were being killed by the snakes that God told them to raise up a brass serpent on a pole, and if people just looked at it, they would be healed. Well, by Hezekiah's day, they were worshiping that. That that item, Uh, which means it has still been around for hundreds of years now. It's been around and people have started worshiping it. Uh, Forgetting about God and worshiping worshiping the brass altar uh, idol. And Hezekiah called it the nehushtan or the piece of brass. Or the worthless brass thing in in some, uh, some things. In other words, he is cleaning up what's going on. He's bringing people to God almost forcing them, he's getting rid of all the other places where they can worship. And this is a pretty big deal. Um, Most of the kings had never taken this step. They had maybe turned to God, but not willing to make the people turn to God. And Hezekiah is so on fire for God, he says, we're going to follow God no matter what. If you don't like it, tough, I'm I'm getting rid of all your, your places of worship. Uh, So that's all of these uh, temples that uh, other gods and altars. And verse five says, he trusted in the Lord of Israel and did, and there was none like him among the kings of Judah and, and nor were there any before him. And this is kind of an interesting statement because this seems to include David and Solomon as well. As far as none like, like unto him. And I know there's none after him because there's, Josiah is going to be after him, and Josiah is a good king, but you know, Hezekiah is the one that really brings him back. But I find it interesting there was none like him before. Now we know Solomon had his problem. He walked away from God. But to include David in that list kind of makes me amazed. But David did commit adultery with Bathsheba. He, had to be, he got chased out of his kingdom a couple of times. So in other words, I can almost see this, but as far as a righteous man... I think David rivaled Hezekiah. Uh, but it does say that Hezekiah, is one of the, in God's view, is, is one of the greatest kings they have. Uh, because he does get rid of all the idols. He brings everybody to follow God. And this is kind of an interesting statement. We've had a whole series of kings that haven't been so good. You know, three or four of them were okay. And then all of a sudden, Hezekiah comes. Now Hezekiah is going to have some of his own problems as we're going to see later on, but overall he trusts God and he brings the nation into that trust of God. He gets rid of all the other idols, all the other places that they can worship and makes it basically against the law to worship anybody but God. And say so you're going to worship in Jerusalem. And this is a big deal. None of the other kings had done that they'd not none of them had gone in and wiped out the other other temples and and other other uh, idols they made them that they weren't popular made it so that they weren't supposed to but they didn't ever go in and wipe them out and we've talked about this this is a big deal because the king has the the right and the position but they also need the support of the people to really rule so he's going in and destroying where they want to worship (laughs) is not a light step even for a king to do and he's wiping out all other places of worship and saying you're going to worship God and it's going to be here in Jerusalem at the altar that you're supposed to worship at so this is a huge deal and he trusted in him and verse 6 says for he clay to the Lord he was glued to the Lord That clave is the same word that God uses of Adam and Eve and husband and wife, that they are glued one to another. And Hezekiah's relationship with God is so tight that he is glued together, nothing is going to separate him from him. And it says, he departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. So he is using the Pentateuch. He's teaching the Pentateuch, having the people taught from the Pentateuch. He is obeying laws, and he's going to get the other's to follow suit. And it's an amazing thing when the leaders will lead the right direction, the country will come that direction as well. And this is the thing that we're seeing in our country right now is our leaders aren't going in the right direction. And I would love to see revivals amongst our leaders to turn to God and come back to God and bring our country back under focus with God. Uh, This is what Hezekiah is doing. And verse 7 is beautiful. For the Lord and the Lord was with him and prospered him wherever he went. All right. So God is giving him victories. He's giving him prosperity. Giving him honor. And this is what God does. When we follow and obey him, he brings prosperity to us. And maybe not physically all the time or you know, not, not money all the time, but he gives us peace. He gives us all these things, and oftentimes it does come with maybe not great wealth, but enough sufficient wealth. And I think it's more important probably just to have sufficient wealth and to have great wealth. Just enough so that I still have to depend on God, but not have to be begging him all the time. And we see Hezekiah is getting this, and but and then it says, He rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. Now remember. If you remember back several weeks ago when we were talking about his father, his father paid tribute to the king of Assyria. He decides, no, I'm not going to give him tribute. Now I don't know if this was made through prayer or what, or just he's prospering and he, or, or what causes it. But he decides to rebel against the king of Assyria. And remember, at this time, Assyria is becoming an empire. All right, it is the next. It's the first of the four great empires that Daniel talks about. Assyria, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the Greeks, and the Romans. Assyria is the first big one that was talked about during that period of time. And so this is when they are starting. And he rebels against the new empire, <laughs> the, the up-and-coming empire. And then it says, He smote the Philistines even to, unto Gaza, and the borders thereof, from the tower of the Watchmen to the fenced city. So Philistia has been an enemy of Israel ever since Saul's days and before. It's been the enemy of the judges. All right. He beats them all the way back to Gaza, which is on the coast. And the southernmost part of Phil- Philistia, he beats them back all the way. Doesn't say, but probably puts them into subjection. If he's conquered that much of their territory, they're, they're in subjection to him. And So he is being victorious. He's militarily victorious. He's spiritually victorious because God is blessing. He's getting prosperous. And all of these things come together for him because he is honoring God. And this is the great thing. When we honor God, God will bless and help us out. All right, verse 9. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, Hosh, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and he besieged it. And at the end of three years he took it. Even in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken, and the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto, unto Assyria and put them in Halah. Hala, and Habor, by the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and would not hear them, nor do unto them. So we just talked about this event in the previous chapter. This king of Assyria attacked Assyria, conquered conquered the uh, Israel, and shipped all their people all over the kingdom. And he was very famous for that. You know, if and his plan, as we're going to find out later in this chapter, he, was, he sets his sight on Judah, and his plan is to go ship them out. That was what he did. He conquered land. He moved the people out of their land and moved people from those other lands into their, into their territory to, get, you know, to make them so they wouldn't be as, as territorial and more likely to rebel. Because if they're not in your home territory, you're not likely to, to care about it. And so his process was he conquered nations and he shipped them out. And we saw the, the foundations of Samaria being, the Samaritans being in that, in that shipping in. Those people are going to marry the, intermarry the Jewish people, the poor, poor Jewish people that stayed. And they're going to make half-breeds that are going to be rejected by Jesus' day. Because they are not just half-breeds physically, they're also they're spiritually half-breeds because they start picking up other religions and tying them all together and making a big jumble mess of what God says. And that's something that we have to be very careful of. It's so easy to mix the world's way of thinking into our, into what God tells us. And they did it with the, the bra- brazen serpent that was put up there to, to heal people and it should have been destroyed right after became an idol. And all these things, people tend to want idols. Even Christians, we tend to want idols, something that we can see. God, just show me something. And sometimes we'll take our experience and make an idol out of our experience. This is when God really did a big thing. The Jews had almost done that, even with the, the Passover and the, the 10 plagues. Everything always focused back. And God does not want us focused completely back. He wants us to remember what he has done, but not focused on it so much that it becomes our way of living. You know, well, God, you know, back back when, <laughs> when you did this, you know, I was really blessed, and I'm remembering, I'm living back there in the past. And God says, Well, you may be in the past, but I'm up here doing things today. And we we can get so wrapped up in the past that we can forget all about what's going on in the now and this is what was happening to these people and the children of the of Israel the northern kingdom had rejected God and they never had a good king to draw them back is the the tribe the the line of Judah the southern kingdom they had times when they were being drawn back Hezekiah's coming in and he's really drawn them back he says I'm getting rid of all your other idols you're going to worship God in this nation so we have a really beautiful picture. All right, so now we're going to jump forward eight years later. Now in the 14th year of Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria come up against the fenced cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah the king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended, return from me that which you put on me and which I will bear. And the king of Assyria pointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars of which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and made it and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabisharish and Rabshaketh from Lachish to king Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which was in the highway of the forest field. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Johah the son of Asaph, the recorder. So we're going to stop there for a moment before we get into what that. All right. Hezekiah tries to bribe Shnekerib. <laughs> All right. Uh, basically, he says, you know, hey, I I've, I made a mistake. <laughs> I made a mistake rebelling against you and not not giving your tithe. Tell me what you know. Giving you your 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 tribute. Tell me what you want. And Shnekerib tells him that he wants. 300 talents of silver. That's approximately $500,000 worth of silver. Okay. And at that time, that's a lot of money. And he wants 30 talents of gold or about $50,000 worth of gold. And Hezekiah has been getting blessed from God, but he just doesn't have that kind of funds. (laughs) In his treasury. And so he gets all the silver from the treasury, all the silver from the offerings that have been made to the house of God, and uses that to pay the silver. Isn't that wrong? Uh, he probably shouldn't be taking it from the house of the yeah, Lord. The of the Lord. Uh, taking God's money is not really the best thing to do. Uh, he's not the only king that's done this. Uh, but yeah, being a good king, this is why he's done some things that just don't sit right. But he doesn't, get rid of the, he doesn't get rid of worshiping God. He's just saying, I don't have enough money in the treasury. The, the house of God has, has more silver in it. We're going to take, take the silver. He also takes the gold off the temple doors. And off the pillars. So you can picture this. Everything on the temple is covered with gold. And on the doors and the pillars in front, he strips off all of the, off all the gold. He's not being a good king. Well, he, at this point, he's not trusting God. Yeah. Yeah, he tried to buy his way out of this. And in this case, we're going to see, remember various times I said they bought their way out. And oftentimes the, the bribe does not work. This is one of those times the bribe does not work. He's going to send them the bribe and it's, he's going to keep marching on him anyway. All right, so he's giving him all the money he's got, and the, guy, and the king says, well, I don't care. I'm coming anyway. You know, I think he set it so high that he never expected to get it. And so, but then he decides, well, I'm just going to keep going no matter what. I'm coming, I'm coming after, the, after God's house. But I agree with you. It's kind of hard for me to picture. Here is a good king. He's following God, and now he strips things from the temple. He's taking the money from the temple. And, and defacing the temple to pay off the bribe that is there because he rebelled. Now I don't know that God told him to rebel or not rebel. Back in the very first part of this chapter, there's nothing in there that says that God told him to do this. We should know that's God's house. Well, it's uh, he's king. <laughs> yeah. He's king. He's going to do what he thinks is right, regardless. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but it is something that happens. And it's happened all through history where kings and governments have gone after church money. Uh, various groups during the, during the Catholic Church's reign, as it started splitting up a little bit, there were kings that would go after the church and take money from the church. But it seems like, sure they would do it, but he was a good king. It seems like he wouldn't have that in him. I mean, Human being. Yeah. We all have a heart that is capable, and it's a panic. He has to get this. Where do I have the money in Jerusalem to get this? Well, I've stripped out everything in my treasury. I've taken everything of value to me. God's house has a bunch of money in it. We're going to take it from God's house. Not that it was right, but he is a human being. He is under panic. And this is the, his answer is to take it from the church. Uh, not, I agree, not, not necessarily a good thing for a good king. But one of the things we don't see in his life is a whole lot of prayer. We're going to see some prayer, but we don't know that he prayed before he rebelled against him. We don't know if he prayed when he got the, got the tribute that he was supposed to give. We're not sure if he prayed when he, when he stripped everything out of the kingdom to, to give this man. Now, when the when the enemy's right at his gate, he starts praying. Uh, they a little bit on the late side, but that's the first indication we have of his prayer life. But he is honoring God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to belittle him. He is, he is honoring God. He's doing the best he can, humanly speaking. And this is what we all do. If we're not trusting God completely and leaning yeah. on him, we do what we think is best. And he's doing what he thinks is best. I'm going to buy my freedom from this guy for at least a year by giving him what he wants. Is and... He still, he still has a flesh. He still has a flesh. And this man, nobody, and you've got to understand, nobody has stopped Sernikarip in all of his battles. Okay, He's very much like uh, Alexander the Great later on and Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody could beat him in battle. So he is a little paranoid. Okay? This man has set his sights on me. He's already conquered my outer, my outer cities we weren't able to stop him at all. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem. So he is panicked because humanly speaking, he stands no chance against this man. Uh, and this man, so he sends him all these, all these people. And it says in verse 17, and then king of Assyria sent Tartan, Rish, and Rabshakeh from Lachish to king Hezekiah. Now, those sound like names, but we're told when I do my research, those are actually titles. This is a general that he's sending them. He's sending them a chief of the eunuchs and the chief cupbearer. These are important men in his his inner circle. Uh, And there's debate on whether those are the names of them or those are titles. Uh, And I've seen both in various things. So all we do know is that he's sending some important people to see Hezekiah titles a lot of them do a lot of places say their titles and uh, so he sends these people to Jerusalem to talk to Hezekiah and they come up and it says that they meet him by the conduit or the aqueduct by the upper pool near the full on the road to the fuller's field they're coming up and basically we're going to find out they are underneath the wall of Jerusalem they're at the wall of Jerusalem and they call for Hezekiah to come out Now, these guys are pretty bold. Number one, they're not a king. To call the king out and demand that the king comes is one thing. And they're calling, you know, these are underlings of their king demanding to talk to the king. And King Hezekiah, he sends out Elakim and Shebna and Joah. Okay, he sends out his top dogs. (laughs) So this is a meeting of top delegates to talk to each other. Uh, outside the gate of Jerusalem, and so we have this whole thing going on, and it's going to be a big big uh, treaty, you know, laying down the facts of a treaty. We still see it in our day. The the presidents and, and kings of different countries do not go out and make the peace treaties with each other. They send delegations together. They hammer out the details, bring them back and say, are you happy with these? And then the and then the two leaders come together, shake hands, and sign, sign the treaties that are hammered out by, by, their, by their delegates. So this is nothing new. Uh, it is what has been done. He sends out some guys, go, go talk to them, find out, what, find out what their offer is, find out what they're, why they're here. And uh, remember, they came with a large contingent of, of military. You know, They didn't come, they came with a great show of force. And the, the idea is, uh, you're going to surrender to us. <laughs> And so Hezekiah is right now trying to figure out what are the terms of surrender? Are they something that I can live with uh, as he's going, going, about, going about this work? All right, continuing in verse 19. And Rav said unto them, Speak you now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is there that you trust? You say, but they, but they are but vain words, I I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you trust that you rebelled against me? But behold, you trust on that staff of this bruised reed, even Egypt, upon which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is the Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all that trust him. But if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and altars Hezekiah hath taken away? And hath said to the Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now therefore I pray you, give pledges to my Lord, the king of king of Assyria, and I will deliver you two thousand horses, if you be able to find part find your part to set riders upon them. But how but how then will you turn away from the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants to put your trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Am now Am I now come out against Without the Lord against this place to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Elakim, the son of Hikayah, and Shebna and Joab unto Rishikah, speak, I pray you unto your servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and talk not with us in the in the Jews language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rapshikah said unto them, has my master sent you? Sent me to your master and to you to speak these words? Has he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall that they may eat their own dung and eat, drink their own urine with you? All right. Here's this. This is why we know they're meeting right outside the, right outside the wall. They're not. They haven't gone to an encampment. They haven't gone to uh, uh, anything else. And I the arrogance of this leader is so interesting and his non-understanding of what's going on. All right? So verse 19, he says, what confidence is there that you're putting your trust in? All right? What are you, what are you trusting in? And that's just a straightforward question, and that one probably makes, makes a lot of sense. You know, what are you trusting in? And then he goes on to start talking to them. Verse 20, you say... And he puts in parentheses, but they are but vain words. He goes, no matter what you say, you're, you're, not, you're not speaking very clearly. You say, I have counsel and strength for war. All right. And remember, we just read Hezekiah has gone into battle. He's conquered all of Philistia. He's conquered his, enemy, his, his enemies to the, to the west and to the east and to the south. All right. So, and he's saying, you, your king thinks he's something. Yeah, he thinks he's got some battle strategies, that he's some kind of general. He goes, You you think you're doing that, doing all that good? He goes, and now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Right? You rebelled against me, you're trusting in your strength. And then he goes, Well, you might also be thinking about Egypt. And so he goes, and behold, you trust in upon the staff of the bruised, of this bruised reed, even Egypt. He's saying, Egypt's nothing. He goes, if you're resting on Egypt, you're going to get your fingers stuck with, with uh, splinters. It's going to break underneath you. Egypt's nothing is what he's telling them. So he says, you're thinking about your own military strength? Forget it. No nation has stood up against me. You think you're going to trust in Egypt? Uh, they're, nothing, they're nothing either. Because he's already beat Egypt, back Egypt a few times. Uh, and he says, you can't trust in him. But then he hits on to the big one in 22. And if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, you know, which is exactly what they're going to say, we trust in God. This is where he doesn't understand what's been happening. He said, you trust in the Lord God, is, is not he, is it not he those high places and altars that Hezekiah has taken away? He does not understand that Hezekiah took away the idols from the land. So this tells us that what Hezekiah has been doing in the land, the news of it has gone everywhere. This crazy king is wiping out temples. He's wiping out altars. He's wiping out these gods. He's destroying everything. And this man thinks that he's hurting their own god <laughs> in the process. So this tells us he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does about the na- nation. He knows that Hezekiah has gone in and stripped out all the altars, but he doesn't realize that those are not the altars of God. And that God's only altar is in Jerusalem. So he's coming back. And this also tells us that people, there were probably people who were complaining. And this news was getting out. It was going over the news, the news, the news sources. Hezekiah keeps tacking all these, all, these, all these altars. And he's telling us we have to worship in, in Jerusalem. This man has that much information. Has that much information. He's going, ah, Hezekiah is destroying... You know he's and in his mind, Hezekiah has hurt the God, hurt the dependence upon God by destroying all these altars and all these all these things, and so from his mindset, he's thinking Hezekiah has made enemies of the God, so he has no God to depend upon uh, he's depending on that one God in Jerusalem that you know and who is that God in his mind? So this is his attitude. you know you think you're smart because you've had some battles and victories. You know, you think you're, you think Egypt's going to help you. We're not worried about Egypt at all. And you have, you have made your God angry. So why would he, why would he defend you? So this is what he's saying. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting thing. He goes, you know, so he's starting on this argument. And then he says, you know, now if you give me my, if you'll give pledge of support to me, we'll be real generous. We'll give you 2,000 horses. And then he goes, but you, don't even, you probably don't even have enough cavalrymen to, get to, to mount those horses. We'll give you 2,000. Nah, you can't even fill them. You can't put soldiers on them anyway, so it doesn't matter. This guy is being arrogant to the, to the max. And says in verse 24, And how will you turn from the, away from the face of one captain, the least of the captains? So he's saying, I'm not even one of the greatest generals, and you can't, you're not going to be able to beat me. All right? The king's not even here. The king is not even here to fight you. I'm here. I'm not one of the greatest, and I'm still going to beat you. And he goes, and I'm not afraid. You know, you put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Not a big deal. Then he makes his really big mistake. Verse 25. He says, am I now come up without the Lord's consent against you? He goes, have I come up on my own own will? He goes, the Lord said to me go up against this land and destroy it. We have Hezekiah following God and this arrogant pagan king says, your God's the one that told me to come up and, and attack you. This is not an uncommon statement when people come against Christians or anything. They're going, they'll are going, they misquote the Bible, they'll misquote things and say, it's God who sent us against you. You've been misbehaving and God has sent us to take, take judgment on you. And this is his big mistake. Hezekiah is following God. He doesn't understand that when Hezekiah destroyed all these altars, he was doing God's will. He doesn't understand that Hezekiah has been following God and being blessed by God. And now he dares to say that God sent him. You know, big problem there. Now, in verse 26, we read that Eliakim and, and Shebna and Joab said, you know, speak to us in in arabic you know in in uh in your language because we understand it don't we don't want you to hurt the morale of the people on the on the wall and this is not uncommon this i'm surprised that they even held the council at the bottom of the wall i would have planned it somewhere further out of earshot but these guys are talking they're not even talking in hushed tones as he gives all of these statements he's speaking very loud He wants the men on the wall to hear this. He wants to make them have doubt in Hezekiah. He wants them to have doubt in God. He wants them to have doubt in anybody that can can deliver them. So they're out there trying to get these guys to be, lose morale. And these guys are going, just talk to us in Hebrew. Talk to us in Aramaic. We... Uh, we, a uh, Syrian, excuse me, talk to us in Syrian. We understand Syrian. We'll talk to you in Syrian. And that is when he says, you know, has my, have, have I been sent only to you and your master? My master said to talk to them. They understand that their idea is to demoralize the army. This army is stuck in the city. They're about to be besieged. And this is what he says. I'm talking to these guys because they're going to have to go eat their own dung and their own urine when, we're, when they're in that city long enough. Yeah, the end of uh, verse 17 there Mine need some explaining. 17? Yeah, the end of 17. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the watcherman's field. That doesn't even sound like a Middle Eastern name. Uh, well, mine says Fuller's, the, the place where they widened, washed their clothes. Oh, washer man. Oh. Washer man. Fuller, the fuller, the one that would bleach, bleach oh, the clothes. But they got it in cap, capital. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And mine says Fuller, the, where they widened, widened all the, all the yeah, laundry. That's okay. <laughs> uh, so they're there speaking loudly, trying to demoralize the army. To get them to go against Hezekiah and surrender. Number one, they know that they don't really want to besiege another city anyway. It takes years to to conquer a besieged city. It's hard to surround Jerusalem because it's on the top of a mountain. You have to surround the entire mountain to besiege Jerusalem. Uh, So they're not looking forward to this. They want the people to surrender. And so they've attacked the king's King's military strategy—they've attacked his alliances, they've attacked God, and now they're warning them that when we besiege you, you're going to be hungry. Yeah, you, know, you all are going to be hungry. And this is a, this is something they all know: to be besieged is to to basically start starving to death until you're able to get somebody to break the break the siege or surrender. So this is a all the military men know that this is going to be a big deal. And when they talk about eating your own dung and and drinking your own uh, urine, they're going, this is probably what's going to happen. On a long enough uh, siege, this is what's going to happen. Because we're going to run out of food eventually. We're going to run out of water eventually. Uh, And so this is a big deal. And he's talking to these people and really just trying to get their attention. He knows that he's pretty sure Hezekiah is not going to surrender. He's sure that these leaders aren't really going to talk about surrender. So they're now talking to the people on the walls. Let's get them to be willing to surrender. You know, there's more of them. If they turn against Hezekiah, Hezekiah will, will be sent out here and, and captured. And so this is what they're trying to set up. So verse 28. And rashaka stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spoke. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not unto Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me. And then you will eat every man of his own vine and every man his own fig tree and drink every man of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and and wine and a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil and olive and honey. And you may live and not die. Hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuades you, saying, saying, the Lord will deliver. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of the Hamath and the Arpad and the gods of the Sheth and Hithim and Ivan? Have they delivered Samaria out of, your, out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, as for, king, for the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Then came Elikim and the son of Hekiah, which was over the household, and Shibna the scribe and Joha the son of Asaph the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and told him the words of Repshakha. All right. So Reb says, okay, I'm tired of dealing with you guys. You're you're wanting to keep this private. And he speaks directly to the people. uh, Directly to the people. Now, he can't be heard over the entire wall of Jerusalem. But what do we know about news and rumor? It travels fast. Uh, Before these guys even made it back into the gate, the entire army had probably repeated these words all the way around the entire wall of Jerusalem. Even though they weren't answering them, they were passing this word back and forth. So his attack is, hear the words of the great king. Okay, you think you've got a great king? I've got, I've got the great king. Now, he doesn't understand that God is the great king. But he's saying, listen to the great king. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He already kind of understands what's going to happen. Hezekiah is going to say, our God will deliver us. You know, we've been victorious in these other battles. God's going to deliver us, and He says, "Don't let Him deceive you." It like he could like the well, basically. Yeah. But this is the way things go. You're trying to you're trying to put uh, doubt into people's minds about their leaders. Uh, that's what propaganda is all about. In in wartime, you make attacks upon the character, the abilities of the of the leaders, and try to get people to doubt the leaders. Uh, So he's doing all of that. He goes, you know, hey, this Hezekiah, he's going to try to deceive you. He's going to really make you think that he can win this battle. And then he goes, and then he continues in verse 30, neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Now this is kind of an interesting thing because Hezekiah is changing the nation from that really bad nation that it was, not worshiping God. He's only a uh, eight, nine, ten years into his into his reign. So he's only now starting to get them into worshiping God and following God. Maybe been reminding them about uh, Egypt and the Passover and the conquering of the land of Canaan. Uh, so he's, he's trying to rebuild them, that they're following a God that does not get defeated. All right? And so he's coming back and saying, ah, don't let this guy deceive you, you know, and then they go on, no other god, is, no other god is de- of any nation has delivered them. Again, this is the polytheistic thinking. You know, well, you just have another one of the gods in the pantheon. You, know, you just have a god. None of these other gods in any of these other countries have ever defeated them. Now, he doesn't know what God did to all the gods of Egypt. He doesn't know what God did to all the gods of the Canaanites that couldn't stand up against them. And the people are starting to remember these things. Hezekiah is going to just say, trust in God. God will deliver you. But this is a heart attack. Don't let him make you trust in this God. Uh, you know, for the, the Lord will surely deliver us in this city and shall not deliver it into the hand of the of the hand of the king of Assyria. That's his quoting of what, what uh, Hezekiah will say and does say. And later on, we'll see that Isaiah gives the prophecy that God is going to deliver them. So it's not just the king, it's Isaiah that's going to say the same thing to them. And verse 31, Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, like he's, a, like this is, he's the important guy, he's, he, he is God. And in his mind, the king of Assyria probably did consider himself God. Most of these kings considered themselves gods. So thus saith the king of Assyria... I'll make an agreement with me with a presence. You know, give me, give me some tribute and I will let you live. You know, get rid, come off the walls and I will let you live. And he says, I'll let you eat of your own vine, every man his own fig tree, and drink you of all waters of your own cisterns. He goes, life will be good. I'll leave you alone. You can, you can enjoy life. Until. <laughs> until I take you away from your land. And, but he says, but I'll, give you, I'll put you into a land like yours. It won't be your land, but I'll put you into a land where you'll have food and drink to, to have. And he'll do just what he did to Sam- in Samaria. He said, I'll ship you out and I'll bring new people in. They'll have your land, you'll have their land. Um, you know, this is not something you want to tell to the Jewish people who say that this is the land that God gave us. All right, they're not going to come back with that whole, uh, whole whole statement, but they're going, I'll send you to a land with corn and wine and bread and vineyards and oil, and, uh, olive oil and honey that you may live and not die. It's your choice. You know, get out here and, and live, don't die. Don't die for this king. Don't die for your God. Don't take a stand. And, and the sad thing is, how many of us in, in, as Christians oftentimes are willing to give up rather than trusting God. We are coming into a time where if we don't trust God, it's going to be easy to give up. We have groups that are attacking Christian entities and businesses and saying, well, if you don't do what we want, we're going to put you out of business. We have to be ready to take a stand and say, we're going to stand for God. This is where they're at right now. He's going, hey, I'll give you everything. You'll have everything that you have here just surrender just surrender and do things our way very statement of satan to adam and eve eat of this fruit and you'll be like god knowing good and evil you won't lose anything you won't die you'll but you'll be like god over and over again the attack of satan is i will give you everything if you just surrender What was one of his attacks to Jesus? He took him on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you will just bow down to me, I'll give you all of these. You don't have to go on the cross to win this all back. I'll give it to you if you just worship me. Here's the same thing going on. Just worship me and I'll give you. I'll give you. Now, are they going to get as good a land as they gave up? Probably not. But he's making it sound really good. Just just surrender. Just give up. And life will be good. Give it all to me, yeah. you, you won't have to go through any trials. You won't have to go through any troubles. Just surrender and give it up. And then he goes on even further. Verse 33. Have any of the gods of any of these nations delivered them out of the, out of the hand of his Assyria? And this is when he goes through all the different gods that we talked about last week that are being worshipped in, in Samaria and other parts of the kingdom. He goes, none of these other gods stand up to me. None of these gods. Now, they're all, they're all just a bunch of wood and stone and, and gold, but you know, none of them can stand against me. Hopefully, as Hezekiah has trained his people up well enough to understand that they're, they're following the God. And all these other idols are, are worthless. But again, he's only had about 10 years or so to get people into the idea that they're following the God. Up until just recently, they've been worshiping all these gods. So to them, this is a big deal. Wow, he's beating every other god that we used to trust in. Will our god really stand up against him? So there's some, he's throwing doubt in people's minds. He's really throwing doubt in their mind. Uh, verse 35, and who among all the gods of the countries have delivered their country out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? None of these other gods did it. Your God's not going to do it. This guy is being very arrogant. But from the fleshly human point of view, he has every right to be. Nobody has stood up against them. They have taken the northern kingdom, which supposedly worships the same God that Hezekiah does. Now, they'd rejected that God many, you know, many generations before. But as far as this guy is concerned, they were worshiping the same God. God did not deliver Israel, so there's no way he's going to deliver Jerusalem in his mind. And he is getting very vocal about it. And the people did just what they were told. It says, but the people held their peace. They did not answer him because the king had said, don't answer him. Don't speak to him. The king already knew what was going to happen. He knew that they were going to try this kind of stuff. Maybe not every word that they do, but he knew that they were going to try to make him look bad, make God look bad. And he said, Just be quiet. Don't say a word. And then came Elikim, the, the son of Heckiah, which is over the house, and Shibnon and Joab, the recorder. And they came to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and told him the words of Reshachah. Now I have one big problem in that statement. Why did they tear their garments? Tearing your garments meant that you were in despair. These guys truly did not trust that God would deliver them at this point in time. They tore their garments. We heard something terrible. How How can God deliver and they tore their garments in, in, in fear and trembling. They should have come back fully clothed, fully dressed with their royal robes on, and said, Hezekiah, you know what that fool out there was saying? Instead, they come back like whipped dogs to come see Hezekiah. You know, This is, this is a problem. All right? They're coming in with the wrong attitude. Hezekiah has been teaching them to obey God, and they're listening to this man and all of his bragging and all of his posturing, and they are affected by it, and like I say, I would have much preferred them to come back and say, "You know, here we are in our royal garments, and you know hezekiah you got we've got to just tell you what that fool out there has been saying, you know how how much he is blaspheming God, but that is not how they come back into the into the into the city. They don't come in back with their heads held high and saying. We, we know that God's going to do something miraculous. They're coming in like a bunch of whipped puppies that are looking to be defeated and just waiting for the siege to start and having them be defeated. And God is not going to allow that, as we're going to see in the next couple chapters. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us learn to trust you always to hold firm on what you have for us and to always seek you for all that we do and we just thank you in your son's name Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer you don't know God and that is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com.